choir and orchestra in leading us today. And thank you, congregation, for coming alongside of me in this time of worship and lifting your voices with mine as we offer our praise and our worship, our thanksgiving to the one who is worthy. I have been encouraged and inspired through our time together today. And I pray that as we worship God, that the Spirit of God will come and nurture and minister to us through His Word as well. Draw near. I believe, and as I shared last week, I think that one of the critical needs for our church is this idea of coming together, of drawing near to God and drawing near to one another and seeing worship as that primary experience and opportunity in the life of our church to gather together, to worship God, to draw near to God, and in that experience of worship, to draw near and close to one another. Last week, as we began our series, we, we kind of went out of order with our, our, our text because it was a, a significant day, a milestone day in the life of our first and sixth graders as they promoted into their new uh, Sunday school life groups and as they received their first and their sixth grade great Bibles, it was appropriate for us last week to, to draw near to God and to each other through Scripture as we looked at this confession, this confession of our hope that we share together through Christ Jesus and that Scripture so beautifully reveals to us and shares with us. But today we look at verse 19, so I would encourage you to, to open your text to Hebrews chapter 10, this beautiful passage that we, we just reflected on, that we just read together as a congregation. And again, over these next weeks, we're focusing on these verses uh, in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, discovering what it looks like to draw near to God together in worship. Now, one of the things we've committed to that we've proclaimed, and certainly that I would say we are learning what it means to grow into each week and each season of our church, but we have declared that we want to be together and come together as one in worship, a generational expression of worship in which we proclaim God's mighty acts and deeds from within our generations to each other as a way to encourage and inspire each other in worship and to inspire each other in the lives that we're called to live. This morning, I will, again, as I want us to focus on this idea of worship, so the question that I would have for each of us is, have you ever really thought about, have you ever really meditated upon the nature of worship, and specifically what we do here in this place, in this sacred space, every Sunday morning? Now, some have described worship and the coming together communally in worship as an acting out or a proclamation of salvation history, a proclamation and acting out of salvation of the gospel, almost a drama that's reenacted each and every week. And we're to engage in that drama as participants as we come to worship each week. The, the beautiful uh, anthem that we heard this morning, the hymns that we sing are an expression of that. Maybe one of the easiest ways to explain what I'm talking about is, is one of the, the longtime favorite hymns of our faith, Amazing Grace. Now, Amazing Grace is a story of John Newton, who was a, a slave ship owner that had a, a, a salvation experience, and he realized that what he was doing in, in his profession, his vocation, was not according to God's will. 
And so he repented of that and he confessed that sin. He, he turned from that. And one of the, the expressions of that repentance was writing to him Amazing Grace. In which he declares the wretch that he is. And he goes on and he gives testimony to, to God's saving work in his life. And so as we would come together on, on a Sunday morning or at times to sing that song, we are engaging in the story of salvation history. We're engaging in particularly in John Newton's story of salvation and how that reflects to us so that as I sing, as John Newton has reflected on his own wretchedness, therefore I can sing, you know what? I understand God's amazing grace because I'm that wretched sinner too. And Newton did such a good job of express, expressing and telling his story of salvation that, that many of you know that someone else had to come alongside and say, well, what should be our response to this incredible story of salvation? And the response was the last verse. When we've been there 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing God's praise, right? Right? And so worship is a coming together to, to share in, in the story and proclaim the gospel story, but also to offer praise and thanksgiving to the one that makes it possible. This idea of, of worship is, is acting out salvation. I'll never forget one of the most powerful worship experiences of my life. I was a junior in high school. I had been asked in our church, we did a, a big passion play, a musical drama of, of the Easter story each year, and I was asked to be the, one of the thieves. Now, before you characterize me in, role, in, a, in a certain role, I was the good thief, right? <laughs> but I'll never forget as... As we acted out that story, as, as I hung on a cross, literally, and as they brought Jesus up, and as they, they pounded nails and, and a hammer on that stage, and, and as I shook on that cross, and as I had that, remember me when you get to heaven, and that Jesus character acting out the gospel story said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And as I died on that cross and as they carried me off of that stage, now I remember it would have been back over here in, our, in our, our auditorium, our sanctuary. I snuck back in and I just sat on the ground over here next to the pews. And the story of salvation opened up to me in, in a new way. Because why? Because we, we acted out. We experienced it. It was real to me. And in that moment as a junior in high school, God began through that worship experience of drawing near to God. God drew near to me. And in that moment, I began. It's that pivotal time in my life where I began to struggle and understand a call to ministry in my life. What do we mean when we, we say we come together to worship and we experience and we proclaim the, the history, the drama, the gospel in worship? What do we mean by that? It leads to the question, well, is worship, is worship about you? Is it, is it about me? Is it about God? Is it about the choir and orchestra and the fantastic job that they do every week? Is, is it about Chad? Is it about anyone else that would come up here on this platform? Is worship about us? No. 
Of course, worship is first and foremost about offering our praise and our our thanksgiving to God for this salvation story, for this gospel message that we, we know and that we receive and embrace in our lives. Listen to the psalmist, if you would go to, to Psalm 95. Listen to the psalmist describing worship and what it is. In worship, the psalmist says, Oh, come, come, church, come, people of God, come and let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully with psalms. For the Lord is great, a king above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship. We're coming into the presence of God. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his field. Worship is about God. It's coming into his presence. Turn over to chapter 100, Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before the Lord with joyful singing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. His faithfulness to all generations. Worship is first and foremost about God. But notice it's a call to God's people. It's a call to God's people to gather together, to come together, to share and to tell the stories of salvation, the story of God's greatness, to praise and thank him as one. Worship, as we talk about these psalms, is, this, is thus an awareness, it's an experience of coming into the presence of God, coming into his gates. And yes, as, as New Testament believers, we understand that the Spirit of God lives within us and that we are his temple and we are the, the dwelling and the holy place of God. But also, I think, to, to have an appreciation of those sacred places, those places that we set apart. And we gather together to offer our praise is critical. When we come into the presence of God, it seems that three responses are fairly expected and that we should engage in. First of all, the first response of coming in the presence of a holy God should be confession and repentance, right? I'm not holy and I'm not perfect. And when I come into the presence of a holy God, I, I experience that and I sense that. So God, I confess my sin and I repent of my sin. And as, as an understanding that God hears my confession and God redeems and restores and forgives me because of this work of salvation, now I can offer praise and thanksgiving to him in ways that I could never imagine before. And third... Again, as we offer our, our praises and our thanksgivings to God, it seems to me that, that that should elicit a response of bringing our gifts, our offerings, our lives to the Lord. Oh, that we would never come to worship empty-handed, 
but that we would come with all expectation of, of giving our lives, of giving our, our praise, our thanksgiving, of giving our gifts to God in response, in worship. But church, something happened along the way. Something happened along the way in, in our Western culture and, and even before God's people began to believe that worship was more about us than it was about God. The phrase, I'm going to worship, changed. Today, in so many of our churches, the phrase, I'm going to worship, worship is a, is a noun. Worship is a place. Worship is an experience. I'm going to worship. And I, I don't believe at all that that is God's intent. I think that we change the word worship from being a noun, from, from what, it, what it is today as a noun, from being a verb. The word I'm going to worship ought to be a, a verb in our lives. Understanding that we are going to worship. Worship is an act. Worship is a gift that we offer to the Lord. Instead of asking what can I do or what can I give in worship, how can I respond in worship, we typically ask the question, well, what did I get out of worship? The music was too loud. The music was too slow. The preaching was too long. You know, I, I just didn't get enough or anything out of church today. I didn't get anything out of worship today. For you see, worship has become a performance for us. And we, the congregation, are the consumers of that, por of that performance. And therefore, as a good consumer, we're quick to offer our reviews and critiques on Sunday afternoons. Maybe, maybe Soren Kierkegaard's reflections on worship are helpful for us today. Many of you are familiar with uh, this Danish philosopher and theologian of the 19th century. He agreed that in some ways that worship was a, a performance, an acting out, as we have described earlier, but not like we think. He said the consumer-oriented worship is, is like this. Worship is about God prompting the worship leaders and actors, the people on the stage, so that they can then lead or entertain, perform for the congregation. And therefore, because of the performance, it, it should be critiqued and reviewed each week. But Kierkegaard had another idea and insight. Instead, he proposed that God alone is our audience for worship. And that worship leaders are simply that. They're leaders, they're prompters in worship. And that their responsibility is to prompt and to, to lead the congregation in worship. And so therefore, the various elements of worship that we experience together are prompted on the, on the platform. But they're prompted to the congregation so that the congregation can immerse itself and act out the gospel message. And act out and offer their praise and thanksgiving at the promptings of the worship leader. So therefore, 
We sing and we participate and we offer our, our singing of praise and thanksgiving. As we talked about earlier, songs and anthems that we hear and that we sing tell the gospel story. They give testimony to God's work in our lives. We participate in worship as we, we receive the word of God through scripture and, and through preaching each Sunday. We act out salvation as we do in our Baptist tradition through baptism, through the Lord's Supper is an acting out of worship of, of the gospel message. We give our offerings. We offer our prayers. You, as the actors and the actresses, receive the word of God. You receive the script, and it becomes embodied within you and is therefore acted out before God in spirit and in truth. So if worship is about God and not us, and if worship is specifically about embodying and acting out and expressing the truth of God in our lives, where do we begin? How do we begin? Well, let's go to our text in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a, high, a, a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I think this verse 19 and 20 work together to offer us a picture of worship. The writer of Hebrews says, because of what Jesus has done, because of the blood of Christ, we can have confidence to enter the holy place. Confidence to enter the presence of God. Oh, but don't you see that, that, that I'm a sinful person, I'm a sinful man, I'm, I'm a sinful woman, and, and I cannot come into the presence of God. That was the story of the Old Testament. The old story of the Old Testament was the understanding and recognition of one's sin and impurity and that you could not stand before a holy God. And so, so therefore, a, a system of sacrifices was developed to, to buy time, to offer an interim solution. But church, we need to understand that we on our own cannot enter into the presence of God by ourselves. And what the scripture is telling us is now, because of Christ, we can have confidence to enter in. Now we don't have to proclaim, I don't belong in the presence of God. Now through the sacrifice of Christ, through the blood of Christ that I've received, I can enter into the presence of God I'm no longer unclean, but I've been cleaned through the sacrifice of Jesus. You see, worship takes sin seriously. And worship of God comes to that place where our confidence cannot be upon ourselves. Our confidence cannot be upon us to, to be cleansed of our own works and deeds. Rather, our confidence is found in and through and on Jesus Christ. I want to spend a little bit of time about this, this holy place, confidence to enter the holy place, which, which I'm saying for us represents the presence of God. I have a picture here for us to look at. 
This is a model. It comes, it's a model of Herod's temple of the old city of Jerusalem. It's found at the Israel Museum. If you have a chance to go to Jerusalem, you certainly need to go to the Israel Museum. And there's this massive replica to scale of old city Jerusalem. And in, in the center of that is, is this model of Herod's temple. Now, what we can't see are the outlying uh, uh, courts. The, gen- the court of Gentiles will be outside of this picture here. But notice this first court that you would enter into. This is known as the, the, the court for women. This is where women could go into as a part of their worship and, and celebration. There was places there for sacrifice, for bringing your offerings. But then notice the second layer. The second court was known as the court for men. And the men could enter into there. And again, there were places where you could offer your sacrifices and your worship as well. And then notice this big structure here. The structure in the middle. This was called the holy place. This is the place where the priests could go into. And so the priests would go in and they would offer their sacrifices. They would would have their rituals that they would go through as well. But only the priests could enter into the holy place because only they were deemed to be holy enough, clean enough to enter into this place at this time. But once you go into the holy place, there's another level. And we see a picture here. This is a a picture, a a rendition, a a model of what it might have looked like inside the holy place. And you see this great veil, this great curtain that went across to to offer a separation between the holy place where the priests could go and conduct their work into the holy of holies. The holy of holies would have been the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, would have been the place where the once a year on the Day of Atonement, the priests would go in and make sacrifice for the people of Israel. And notice here the, the priest preparing to go in. Now there's a, 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 a tradition out of the Talmud, it doesn't come out of Scripture, but out of the Talmud, out of the ancient Jewish teachings, that said that the, the, the high priest, before he would go pass through the veil, that they would actually tie a rope around his ankle. So that if he got into the presence of God and, and it was deemed by God he was not pure enough or, or holy enough and not gone through the cleansing rituals properly enough, that he might just drop dead there And that way they could retrieve him if they needed to. But notice the attention here on on this veil. This veil that separates man, separates the priest from God. It's a, a veil, a curtain of separation, but also another aspect of this veil is it's a veil that has to be passed through. There was no other way around for the priest to go to get into the Holy of Holies. The, the, the priest had to go through the veil. And so it's interesting that, that, that verse 20 tells us that Jesus inaugurated for us through the veil, through His flesh. There was this veil, this, this separation between us and between God, quite literally there in the temple, but in our own lives in which sin separated us from the, the presence of God. And it was Jesus Christ who came. And in Matthew 27, the scripture tells us that at the crucifixion, that the veil of the temple was torn in two. You see, the crucifixion is the key event and the resurrection is the key event of our history that tears away the veil of separation between God and between man. And through the veil or through the curtain of the body of Christ, we can pass once and for all into the presence of God through the sacrifice, through the body of Jesus Christ. 
which was sacrificed on the account of our sin for all of us. That sacrifice has once and for all been made. If you're in Hebrews chapter 10, turn back to the first verse. For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have been conscious of their sins. But in those sacrifices... There was a reminder of our sins year by year. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Referring to the sacrificial system that, that was in place in the Old Testament. Those were a reminder of sin, but ultimately they could never take away our sin. So we turn over, look at verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time after time after time the same sacrifices which ultimately never take away the sin. But he, Jesus Christ, the great high priest, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool to his feet. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Verse 18, for where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Do you, do you see what happened? Jesus tore the veil through, through, through his flesh, through his sacrifice on the cross. And when he tore the, flat, the, the veil, that became the sacrifice, the one-time sacrifice for our sin. Which leads us to where we started in verse 19. Therefore, therefore, since Jesus has torn away the veil, he's torn away the, the, the curtain, he's torn away the separation that we would experience between us and God because of our sin. Therefore, since he has done that, we can enter into the holy place. We can enter into the presence of God. We can enter into the presence of God to worship God to commune and fellowship with God, to hear from God, to praise and to thank God because of what Jesus has inaugurated through his death and through his resurrection, which leads me to our focus for today. Church, I believe that God is calling this church to a season of worship, of drawing near to God and to each other through worship. Look at verse 25. Therefore, let us not forsake our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter into the presence of God, therefore, since the veil has been, has been ripped and torn away, therefore, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The ripping of the veil... The forgiveness of sin is not the invitation and the initiation to go off and, and be our own individuals, but rather is to come together as God's people and to come together in community and fellowship and to assemble ourselves together. And yet even in the early church, it began to be the habit of some to forsake. That word forsake means to let down or to abandon. The early church members, many of them were abandoning their opportunity, their responsibility to come together 
in worship, in fellowship, in community. This word assembling together is, is a powerful word. Its root word is the word synagogue. Let us synagogue together. Let us meet together. What did the, 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 the Jewish people do at the synagogue? They, they came together to worship and to study, to be in community and to fellowship with one another. And notice what, what the writer here is saying. Let us not forsake synagoguing ourselves together. But, but there's a new addition. It's not the same old synagogue. There's a, a prefix added on to this word synagogue. For you Greek folks out there, it's the, the synagogue epi, which means above. Let us synagogue above. There's something new about the associating, the, the assembling, the coming together, because the veil has been ripped away. And now... Remember in, in, in the, 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 the Jewish people, the only place where the presence of God would be would be in the Holy of Holies, would, would not be in the individual synagogues. But hear what, hear what the writer is saying. Now, church, now, people of God, let us assemble together epi-synagogue. Epi let us gather above. Gather above where the Spirit of God is, where the presence of Christ is, where God is in new and deeper ways. Oh, church, let us not forsake and abandon our assembling ourselves together because there's a new assembly. There's a new opportunity to gather together, and that is the people of God in the presence of God to worship and to pray and to encourage each other. Church, it is time for us to draw near to God and to one another in worship and assembling together as we'll study more on the rest of this passage assembling together stirs us yes it's coming into the presence of God but it stirs and encourages us to love and good deeds I'm reminded of the psalm one that we've talked about before Psalm 145 verses 3 and 4 it proclaims, great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And one generation shall pass your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Did you, did you hear that? Coming together in worship is about declaring the mighty acts of God. What is the mighty act of God? The mighty act of God is the, is the act of salvation, is the gospel, the good news. And we come together across the generations. And just like John Newton, we share our stories of salvation from generation to generation. And we praise God and worship God. For you see, the veil of separation between us and between God is torn in two. And our only adequate response to that good news is that we come together and we worship and praise God. We worship and praise God above the phrase and the cares of this world. We come into communion with God so that we can be strengthened, so that we can be encouraged for the life of love and of good deeds that we live out in this world. And as Paul would tell us, that is our act of worship each and every day. Church, would you make a commitment to draw near to God and to one another in worship over these next months? In fact, I'm going to ask us as a church to make a commitment to be together in worship for the next four months, for the rest of this year, as we complete draw near, as we move into our season of, of, of missions, and as we move into our season of Advent, would you, would this church make a commitment with each other to draw near to God and to one another in worship? That means coming prepared for worship, coming rested for worship. It means arriving on time. It means spending time with, with God in prayer. 
And in Bible reading and study, it means come with your, your offering ready to give. And whatever expression of offering it means that you would give to the Lord on any given Sunday. Let us come together in the presence of God and of one another to worship God and to stir and encourage each other across the generations. Church, I believe that God wants to do some new things and some, some deeper things and to introduce to us some new expressions of community and of fellowship and of, of being church together. And I believe the focal point of that is the place of worship where we commit to gathering in this place of worship? Would we commit to filling this place, not with just with our church members, but with those in our community that are looking to share and to experience and to draw close and near to God and to others in community fellowship? We're going to try something over these next weeks. Let me see the next screen. I've got a hashtag for us. I wonder... Those of you on social media, which is most of us today, if you would make a commitment and make the commitment to, to announce, to proclaim your commitment to draw near FBC Norman each Sunday. This morning on Twitter, I just simply offered the following tweet. I said, looking forward to a wonderful morning of worship. Hashtag, draw near FBC, FBC Norman. I wonder if we would be willing to make a, a, a public stand, a public commitment through our social media networks to say, you know what, I'm committed to drawing near to God, to each other at First Baptist Norman over these next weeks. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I know they use the hashtag. So would you, would you do something like that? Would you, during this moment, during this time of commitment and invitation, would you offer some kind of, I'm giving you permission to pull out your phones and your devices during the response time? To offer some sense of some kind of tweet, some kind of Facebook post, something that you could put on with a hashtag, draw near FBC Norman. Again, reflecting your commitment to draw near to God and to each other during this time. I've been told on Facebook you can check in. Check in that you're here. Draw near. To, on Twitter today, I tagged myself here, looking forward to being in worship. Would you use that as a way to proclaim and to profess and to mark your public commitment to being in worship over these next week, weeks? This morning, the invitation of God is to draw near to Him and to one another in worship. As we sing, I would ask us to make our commitments, to make our responses. I'll be here to receive those that would come, that would, that would need prayer.